Well, open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be back in there. This is our third, our third sermon on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, we're coming up to our Easter service, and we've been taking a short break away from Isaiah to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've been here over the past few weeks, you'll remember that the reason, one of the reasons is that we're doing this, which we learned a few weeks ago, is the absolute importance of the resurrection to our faith, that everything that we believe hinges on the resurrection. And so it's vitally important that we not only know about it, but that we believe in it. And last week, we talked about the historical evidence of the resurrection and that it was accepted by virtually every New Testament scholar, both liberal and conservative. We looked at five evidences, and four of them, most of them agree on. And we'll, we'll take a look at that in a moment. But this week, what we're going to do is we are going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look at some alternative explanations of the resurrection. So the, for those people that you may hear about, and you may even have been one of them, or maybe you are, How do you explain the resurrection? So last week we looked at five facts from the resurrection, and we'll put those up real quick. And these were the five facts. Number one, that Jesus died by crucifixion. And remember, these are historical facts accepted by virtually every scholar, both liberal and conservative. So they all agreed that Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, they all believed that the disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them. Remember, some stopped short and saying, well, we don't know what they saw, but they saw something. Thirdly, they all believe that the persecutor of the church, the Apostle Paul, was converted by an appearance, or he saw something. Fourthly, the skeptic James, who was the brother of Jesus Christ, also converted to believing that his brother was the Lord. And fifthly and lastly, which one will talk about a lot today, was that the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. Now, obviously, some scholars don't believe this, and that's where today's message comes in, because they're going to come up with some alternative explanations. And this morning, as you could see in your bulletin or up on the board, the title of the message is Refuting Naturalistic Explanations of the Resurrection of Jesus. Sorry, I couldn't come up with this short title. That's pretty much, I feel like a Puritan. If you know the Puritans and you've ever read one of their books, their titles are like, a paragraph, and so I'm following their footsteps. They would say, that's lacking, Robert. You need a little bit more depth. So we're going to look at that. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what happened? And remember, as we go along, I'm going to come back and refer you to these five facts. So it's very important that you keep those in mind as we go through this morning's sermon. But let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And again, we start here because A number of reasons. Number one, the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church in chapter 15 and demonstrates to them that the resurrection is something that's foundation to their belief. And that without the resurrection, then we're all wasting our time. So he's giving them some evidences. And we're going to refer back to these throughout this morning's message and also find some other verses which you'll find in all the Gospels. There's these little hints of evidences that refute all the things that we're going to talk about this morning. So let's just look at maybe verses 1 through 9, I think it's going to be, and then we'll come back and talk about these again in context with the refuting the alternative explanations of the resurrection. 
So the Apostle Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He As one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And let's just stop right there. So again, even in this context, the Apostle Paul, as you can see, gives some evidences for the resurrection, saying that, hey, you people that don't believe it, he appeared to me, he appeared to James, he appeared to over 500 people at one time, and some of them are still here so that you can go talk to them. And again, one of the reasons why I chose 1 Corinthians 15 is because all scholars, both liberal and conservative, assign 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, to the Apostle Paul. We discussed this extensively a few weeks ago. And they say that this recording of chapter 15 was recorded no more than about five years, especially this section, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They all give you that historically. So it's very important, this text. It predates the Gospels. So if somebody wants to say, well, the Gospels are inaccurate and not true, they don't say that about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, particularly verses 3 through 7, which, again, are an early creed that the Apostle Paul is quoting here. They say, remember that that's up to three years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ when that was given. So again... The historical evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can we put that up one more time just so it stays fresh in your mind? What are the facts of the resurrection? Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, the disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them. Number three, the conversion of the persecutor of the church, Paul. The conversion of the skeptic, James. And lastly, the empty tomb. So theories, if you're going to say that the resurrection did not happen, then how do you explain these historical facts? Well, let's look at some of the explanations of the resurrection. I think we have just six of the most popular explanations of the resurrection. And the first one is called the legend theory. The legend theory. And this says that Jesus' disciples never claimed that he rose from the dead. Rather, As the story of Jesus was reported and his teachings spread throughout the world, that they were embellished with supernatural details. Well, what were those embellishments? What were the things that the disciples made up? And what evidence is given to support this claim by those who hold to this truth? Well, let's look at some of the evidences given well, number one, they say that stories change over time. If you've, if you've ever played that game telephone as a little kid and somebody would tell you something in your ear and then you would have to get it all the way around the room, how many times did it come back not being what it, you originally said? They would say, well, there's an example. That's what happened with the early disciples. That They told these stories and then they told the next person and they told the next person. And by the time it finally got written down, there was this big embellishment. 
of the story of the resurrection. Another evidence at the giver that some of the gospel stories contain gaps. You know, there's some things missing in the details. So the writers filled these gaps with what probably happened. And thirdly, another evidence is since the resurrection was such an incredible event, this type of story would take amazing, would take on more amazing facts a lot quicker. Again, more embellishments to make it look greater than it was. So if that said, how would you refute that? How have scholars refuted those things? Well, let me give you a few refutations by uh, critical scholars and by conservative scholars. Well, the resurrection story can be traced to the original apostles. Again, the legend story says, well, the apostles really didn't write this. Well, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and specifically in verse 3, the apostle Paul says that he received this gospel which he received from them. Again, if the apostle Paul was converted, converted five to seven years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he got this story before that. It was fairly early when he got this story about the resurrection, or he was told about it. Not only that, early church fathers, which we talked about a few weeks ago, they are the disciples of the apostles. They concur in their writings that the early apostles did teach about the resurrection. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, this is an early creed that was recited within three years of the resurrection. Legends usually take a lot longer to develop and become bigger. And think of this. So let's say if it was an embellishment. Remember those five facts. Would the Apostle Paul, an enemy of the church at the time of his conversion, be converted that easily? Because there was a story made up. He did not like the church. Why would he convert to, Christ, to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And what about James? And we're going to do this often as we go through each one, referring to these examples from history. The skeptic James, who was the brother of Jesus, would he believe that his brothers rose from the dead based on you know, stories from the apostles? Right? He lived with Jesus. It would take a lot more for you to believe that your sibling was God and rose from the dead than some story by some of his followers. And just because you can state or make the assertion that there were embellishments doesn't make it true. You need some evidence to back up what you say. Another thing is that the Gospels are not in the genre of legend. But remember, they're historical biographies. They're not legends or stories. They're writing about real events. Not only that, something interesting is that when you look at the stories of the resurrection, they're, they're pretty plain, right? Let me give you an example. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and look at chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. These don't sound like extravagant and embellished stories. Mark 16, we're going to look at verses 1 through, 1 through 8 in Mark's recording of the resurrection. And I use Mark because Mark is, to believe, is believed to be the earliest gospel out of all four that are written. So Mark says this, this is how he records this story of the resurrection. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. 
And when, excuse me, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you in Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Not very extravagant and embellished, maybe other than, hey, there's a guy that's in wearing white, and it's pretty amazing, or they were amazed at that. Nothing real extravagant in that story. So let me give you an alternative story taken from the, the non-canonical book of the Gospel of Peter. And I want to read to you what an embellishment sounds like of the resurrection. So just so you know, the Gospel of Peter was written sometime in the third century. And let me read this little section for you about the resurrection. Some of it sounds similar, but then there's a big embellishment. And this is what an embellishment would sound like. He says, Now on the night when the Lord's day was drawing on, as the soldiers kept guard, two by two in a watch, there was a great voice in heaven, and they saw the heavens open, and two men descended from there with much light and came close unto the tomb. And the stone that had been cast at the door rolled away of itself and made way in part, and the tomb was open, and both the young men entered in. So nothing too extravagant. This is where it gets kind of crazy. The soldiers, therefore, when they saw it, awakened the centurion and the elders, for they were also there keeping watch. And as they told the things that they had seen, again they saw three men coming from the tomb. So now there's three men coming out of the tomb. Two of them supported the other. So you could get as two guys maybe bringing Jesus along. And a cross following them. So you have three men coming out of the tomb, and the cross that Jesus was crucified is following them. And it says, And the head of the two reached into heaven, but that of him who was led by them overpassed the heaven. So the two guys are so tall that their heads reach into heaven, even though they're coming out of a tomb. And the guy in the middle, his head goes way above that. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, you preach to the ones who are sleeping, and a response was heard from the cross, yes. So the cross is speaking as well. You could tell why those who accepted books into the scripture or you viewed books of scripture didn't take this one. That sounds a little ridiculous. That's what an embellishment stands like, and we don't sounds like, and we don't have that in the gospels that are in scripture. So for those reasons, many or most believe that the myth or excuse me, the legend theory is not a good explanation of the facts of the resurrection. Well, let's look at another explanation of the resurrection. How about the myth theory? The myth, myth theory says Jesus' disciples copied other pagan accounts of dying and rising gods. So they're saying, hey, there were a lot of stories back in, ancient, in the ancient world that talked about dying and rising gods and rising saviors, and that they reported a lot of miracles. And the disciples basically just you know, filled in the blanks with Jesus. 
is what they say. And two in particular that are always quoted, if you ever watch specials on the resurrection, are Osiris and Adonis. Those are examples of dying and rising gods that people will point to saying, well, the Christians just copied these and so we don't have to believe them. So these, again, these are similar stories. Well, let's look at, a, let's look at these two in particular. And there's more than this, but these are the, you know, the closest, if you want to say, the closest you can get. So Adonis, you may or may not know, is, is from Greek mythology. And Adonis was the god of beauty. And what happened was that Adonis was gored by a wild boar during a hunting trip, and he died in the arms of Aphrodite's. And as she wept holding him, her tears and his blood mingled together, and he became a flower. And eventually, the flower sprung to life. And Adonis declared that this was going to be a festival to celebrate, excuse me, Aphrodite's declared this was going to be a festival to celebrate Adonis' dying, but then rising again as a flower. And so every year, Greek women would plant Gardens of Adonis in small pots containing fast-growing plants, which they would set up on top of their houses in the hot suns, and the plants would sprout, but soon they would die after. And so this is one example that skeptics give that, see, they just copied this from Adonis. The other one is Osiris, who is an early Egyptian cult. And the only account of a, and he's the only account of a God who survived death that predates Christianity. And so he was killed by his brother. So listen to his story. He was killed by his brother and chopped up into 14 pieces and scattered throughout all of Egypt. And Isis, the goddess Isis, went around and collected Osiris, but she only found 13 pieces. And she brought him back to life and he lived. So these are the accounts that people will point to that see these stories in ancient cultures and then so the Christians, they just copied these. But whether you buy it or not, what's the reputation? What do Christians say that, hey, that's not true? What's the reputation of this? Well, number one, these accounts are not all like the resurrection account. I hope you could tell when I was telling that story. Do they sound like the resurrection of Jesus? Well, not only that, they, well, they don't. And the earliest version of the story of Adonis, by the way, appears over 100 years after the resurrection. So the disciples couldn't have copied this story because they didn't even know about it. It wasn't until 100 years after the fact that the first copies were found about these writings. And again, Osiris is not a parallel to the resurrection of Jesus. He's more like a zombification more than a resurrection And there is no clear historical evidence for either of these stories. Finally, these accounts cannot explain away the evidence of the resurrection. So again, if if the disciples made these stories up, would they convert Paul, who was an enemy of the church? Would they convert the skeptic James? And do they give you proof of, well, if the tomb is empty, that doesn't explain away the empty tomb. And most of these theories try to explain away the empty tomb. So that's another theory. Well, what's the third one? A third theory is this, that the body was stolen. It's called the stolen body theory, right? Saying that Jesus' body was stolen. So the disciples invented the story of the resurrection in order to prevent embarrassment or to promote their own views or causes. And there's two versions of this. The first version is this that the disciples are the ones that stole the body. 
And then they lied about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Matthew records that the Jewish authorities were the first ones to encourage this story. You remember in Matthew 26, verses, excuse me, Matthew 28, let's go there. Matthew 28, looking at verses 11 through 15. Let me read this to you. It says, Now while they were, they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted again, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came at night and stole him away while he was asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day, meaning that the time of the writing of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's one version, that, hey, the disciples stole the body, and then they said that Jesus rose from the dead. Another version of the story is that someone else stole the body, and so when the disciples went to the tomb and they saw that the body was gone, they said, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. That's the theory. Well, what's the refutation of that? Well, from what is recorded in the Gospels, the following would have had to happen if the disciples stole the body. Think of this. The disciples would have had to overcome Roman guards, who were probably pretty strong guys. The disciples or grave robbers would have had to unwrap Jesus and fold the linen wrappings and left them neatly on the tomb because John chapter 20 says that when the disciples went into the tomb, they saw the linen folded and rolled it up and set nicely. Now, if, I know none of you have stolen anything, but usually if people steal things, they're in kind of a hurry. They're not taking their time and folding things that they move around. But that's what it would have had to happen. And this story only accounts for the empty tomb. They're saying that's why the tomb was empty, but what about all the appearances to all the disciples, to the Apostle Paul, to James, the brother of Jesus? It doesn't account for that. And not only that, if the disciples stole the body, would they be willing to suffer martyrdom and suffer persecution for a lie? We, met, we talked about that one a lot last week. Remember, what was in it for the disciples to do that? Were they going to gain power? If you know anything about church history, the entire first two centuries were riddled with persecution and struggles for the early Christian church. It wasn't until about the 4th century where Christianity became well-known throughout the Roman Empire. But the early disciples would not benefit from claiming that Jesus rode from the dead after they had stolen him. And again, that wouldn't convince the Apostle Paul. It wouldn't convince James, the brother of Jesus. And it doesn't account for all the appearances. So for that reason, the stolen body theory doesn't hold water. What about the wrong tomb theory? The wrong tomb theory states that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. And having discovered it empty, they concluded that, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. It's similar to the stolen body theory, right? Well, the refutation of that, there's a few things. If you remember the story of the resurrection, that the location of the tomb was exactly known. As a matter of fact, Mark reports in Mark 15, verses 42 through 47, that there are two different sets of people who would have known where the tomb was. The first one being Joseph of Arimathea. Because in Mark chapter 14, excuse me, 15, starting in verse 42, it says this, When evening had already come, because it was preparation day, 
that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up the courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate, wondering if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen and cloth and took him down and wrapped him in a cloth and laid him in a tomb which he had hewn out in a rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. So Joseph had bought this tomb. He knew where the tomb was. And look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. So the women were there as well. They saw where he was laid. And I don't know about the women in your life, but the women in my life have great memories. They remember a lot of things. And then this is a pretty big thing not to forget. Now, if I was there and I saw where the tomb was, I probably would have forgot. I would have had to put on ways to help me get there to find it again. But the women were there. There were people that knew it. They knew where the location was. So they wouldn't have went to the wrong tomb. It was known. And even if they went to the wrong tomb, that doesn't account for the appearances that the disciples claimed that they had, that James had, and the Apostle Paul. It only accounts for the empty tomb, but not all the other historical facts. But even the empty tomb would not have convinced the followers of Jesus that Jesus had rose from the dead. You remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 20 in particular, There are two examples here where the empty tomb doesn't convince the disciples that they rose from the dead. So the wrong tomb theory doesn't hold water either. And matter of fact, in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 2, you have where Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She didn't say, Jesus rose from the dead. She said, no, somebody took the body. She wasn't convinced that Jesus rose from the dead until when? Until he actually appeared. So Jesus' body not being in the tomb, or even if you went to the wrong tomb, that wouldn't have convinced anybody. And later on in chapter 20, look at verse 25 the famous story of Thomas. Thomas wasn't convinced by stories of the empty tomb either, was he? No, what does he say? After the disciples were telling what had happened, they they even said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I'm not going to believe your stories, and I'm not going to believe that you, just because there's an empty tomb, that Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't until Jesus appeared to Thomas where he was totally converted. And on top of that, no early ancient source in in history records or says that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. These are skeptics hundreds of years later trying to account for naturalistic ways why the tomb was empty. So the wrong tomb theory as well doesn't account for all the facts of history. Some of the more popular ones, and these will be the last two. And by the way, if you want to learn a lot more, I'm just touching like the top of the 
I'm lost for the phrase, but I'm just touching the top of all the evidences. You can read books and watch debates where they go a lot deeper on these things. So the swoon theory, what's also called the apparent death theory, it says that Jesus appeared to die on the cross, but after a few hours, he recuperated, showed himself to his disciples, and so they believed he rose from the grave. Well, the evidence that people point to for this fact is that, you know what, sometimes people die and then they come back to life. They're resuscitated or they're presumed dead and then they they come out of it, they snap out of it. And that's what Jesus could have done because nobody rises from the dead. That's the naturalistic explanation, that he seemed to be dead, they thought he was dead, he actually may have been dead, but then somehow he resuscitated and he came back to life And he showed himself to the disciples, and they said, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, what's the evidence against that? How can you refute that? Right? Because some people do at one time are pronounced dead, but then they somehow come back to life. Well, how did Jesus die? He died of crucifixion. And the crucifixion was an instrument of death. Romans used crucifixion in order to inflict pain and ultimately death on its victims. And Romans were experts at this. They knew when a person was dead. Matter of fact, if they went to the cross and to help speed up death, they would go and break the ankles of somebody that was on the cross so that they would die of asphyxiation because they could no longer push themselves up to take a breath. And you know in the Gospels it's recorded when the Romans went to Jesus to break his legs to speed up his death because it was Sabbath and they wanted to take him down. What did they say? They didn't do it because he was already dead. And the Romans, these two Roman soldiers or the Roman soldiers that were there, they would have known if he was dead or not. They did this all the time. It was their job. Not only that, when they pushed a spear in the side of Jesus in John chapter 9, verses, John 19, verses 34 through 35, this verified to the Romans that Jesus had died. It demonstrated that the sack surrounding his heart had ruptured, and since it was when it ruptured, blood mixed with water had come out, and it was no question that Jesus was dead. Not only that, that's the few that's two points of refutation. Not only that, in order to convince the disciples of resurrection, think of what would happen if Jesus just resuscitated. Let's think through this for a minute. So after Jesus suffered crucifixion. Jesus would have been, and he was put into the tomb, what would have happened? So after suffering, beating, crucifixion, being laid in the tomb for a few days, Jesus would have had to unwrap himself in the tomb. He would have had to push away the stone after being pretty beat up. He would have had to get by the soldiers somehow without them noticing. Or, and he would have had to walk back to where the disciples were in his pretty beaten body and just had nails driven through his feet. And he would have had to convince them that he had resurrected. Now think of that. If that had happened, would you say, would you think, Jesus, you rose from the dead? Or they'd be like, Jesus, we need to get you some help. You're not the resurrected Lord. Right? Think of the body that he would have had. He would have been pretty beat up. Not only that, do you think that would have convinced Paul, who didn't like the Christian church? He's like, that's the resurrection, a bloody, beat up body? No, thank you. Or what about the skeptic James? Again, Jesus' brother, he would not have believed that his brother was God and bowed down and worshiped him if he appeared to him like that. And so again, the apparent death theory 
or the swoon theory is no longer believed to be a valid reason to explain away the resurrection of Jesus. And the last one, the last one is called the hallucination theory. And the hallucination theory says this, that when people are grieving over the loss of a loved one, that they, they can hallucinate and think that they see their loved one. And so they're saying, that, well, this is what happened. The disciples were so grieved after spending three years of their life with the Lord Jesus Christ, giving up everything to follow him and wanting so much for it to be true that they all hallucinated and therefore they believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead. What evidence do we have that that could be true other than that, yeah, people who suffer grief, loss of a loved one, sometimes can hallucinate about seeing loved ones and talking to loved ones. But what about the evidence that we've been talking about for the resurrection? Well, the first thing to note that that hallucinations are private occurrences. They usually happen to one person at a time. And you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He says, after he appeared, speaking of the, res- of the appearance of Jesus, after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. So basically, all 500 people at one time would have had to have the same hallucination. And science proves that there's no such thing as group hallucinations, that it's impossible to have. You cannot have a hallucination and ask somebody and invite them into your brain and say, hey, let's have the same hallucination together. That doesn't happen. It happens to one person at a time. And here the Apostle Paul says it happened to 500 people at one time and then to all the apostles at one time. It wasn't one person here, one person there, and another person there, another person. No, it was at one time. So, not only that, What about the Apostle Paul? Why would the Apostle Paul hallucinate about Jesus Christ coming back from the dead? He was not grieving over the death of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he was probably happy that Jesus died. So why would he have a hallucination about it? And what about James, the brother of Jesus? Now, again, James was his brother, so he might have had a hallucination just, you know, missing his brother. But would he have believed that that was Jesus resurrecting and then follow him as God? And, what, and not only that, hallucination doesn't account for the empty tomb. If you're having a hallucination, think of this in the first century. If the critics come and they, you say, hey, I, had a, I just saw Jesus raised from the dead. They say, no, you're hallucinating. Let's go back to the tomb and let's bring out the body of Jesus. That's all they had to do, but they didn't. It doesn't account for the empty tomb. So, again, those... Seven theories, the legend theory, the myth theory, the stolen body theory, the wrong tomb theory, the swoon theory, the hallucination theory are all reasons that people try to give to say, you know what, Jesus could not raise from the dead. It's impossible, naturalistically speaking. But if God exists, then everything changes. If God created the heavens and the earth, how hard is it for him to make a man rise from the dead? If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth. This is nothing in comparison. And you have to come up with alternative theories because as I said at the very beginning, the historical evidence that we have is is agreed to by most scholars. Four of them for sure by all scholars. The fifth one, the empty tomb, is the only one that they try to account for and they won't give away. 
So let's find some application in this as we close up. So those seven theories. So we can do this as believers. And again, I started this, I think, two weeks ago by saying, I know most of us believed on the resurrection without evidence. But given this evidence, it should cement your faith even more. And it should cause you, number one, to stand firm in your salvation. That's why the Apostle Paul concluded, as I've been saying this over and, again, over, and over again over the past few weeks, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. This is Paul's conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You can stand firm in your salvation. Because, why? Because the resurrection is true. Secondly, you can proclaim the gospel with confidence. At the very beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand, meaning you stand with confidence. And what was that gospel again? By which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verses 3 and 4, let's read that. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that what? He was raised from the dead the third day, according to the scriptures. You can proclaim that gospel with confidence just as the Apostle Paul said. And thirdly, and we started off our series with this one, is that we can look forward to our own resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead. Each and every one of us who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will also rise from the dead. And let's close out with reading this section of Scripture. Let's start in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul says this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And again, this is all because of the resurrection. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank you so much for the scriptures that we looked at this morning. And more importantly, Lord God, the story that they tell us that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And because of that, Lord God, we can have confidence in our faith. We can stand firm. We can glorify you with our lives. And we can one day look forward to our own bodies rising from the dead and us living with you for all eternity, with our loved ones and our friends who have gone before us, who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that confidence that we have, and I pray that you would give each and every one of us the boldness 
to live in such a way that we might proclaim the gospel with our life and with our words. And we thank you. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.